finish a study of the covenants of God and the words of verses 6 through 13 of the 8th chapter of Hebrews. But let's look, first of all, at that 8th chapter and remind ourselves of where we were this morning in looking at the covenants. Hebrews chapter 8. In the first five verses, Paul makes a summary statement as to the priesthood of Christ. In verse 6, he enters a weightier argument to prove the superiority of Christ's priesthood by the fact that Christ is a minister of a better covenant. That the Levitical priests who were ministers and who ministered a covenant ministered an inferior covenant. Therefore, as he continues to prove that Christ's priesthood is greater than Aaron's, he also introduces a new subject, and that is the law and the old covenant are being put away. He did not introduce that to begin with, but he introduces it now. As he establishes Christ as a greater priest, he has a more excellent ministry, he now brings into the question or the argument the fact that Christ is a minister of a better covenant which is based upon better promises. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study tonight. Heavenly Father, through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we believe that we shall be saved as all of your elect. Bless us now by the Holy Spirit this night to understand the covenants and your arrangements and dealings with men, that we might know the relationship of the old and the new covenant, see the superiority of the latter, and realize that we have been blessed with the greatest privileges of all of thy people that have lived in the history of this world. For we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, that great priest that has obtained a more excellent ministry through a better covenant. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8 deals with the old and the new covenant. Is there a new way of salvation? It's called a new covenant, brethren. Isn't there a new way of salvation? For the passage reads that their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. It sounds like God will begin forgiving sins with the new covenant. How were men saved before the new covenant? when they were under the Old Covenant. We read in verse 10 that God tells us with the making of the New Covenant that I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Did God have a people? And was He the God of a group of people before the New Covenant? He says these are characteristics of the New Covenant. If they're characteristics of the New Covenant, how can they be characteristics of the Old Covenant? Are there more than, is there more than one way of salvation taught in the Word of God? This morning, we looked at the fact that salvation is by the everlasting covenant. The two most important statements in the Word of God to that effect as far as the words, 2 Samuel 23, 5, Hebrews 13, 20, that tell us we are saved through the blood of the everlasting covenant. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit made an arrangement before the world began, in which they agreed to the various operations of salvation. You were simply picked as the one to benefit from that operation of God. You were the beneficiary of the covenant, of the agreement, of the compact 
among the persons of the Godhead. I showed you this morning the many scriptures that refer to this event taking place before the foundation of the world. Your name was written before the foundation of the world. Christ was ordained to die before the foundation of the world. God chose His people before the foundation of the world. Your eternal inheritance went into construction mode from before the foundation of the world, from the foundation of the world, according to Matthew 25 and verse 34. Let's look now at the history of the world from Adam down to our present day and see how we relate to that everlasting covenant. God saves men by election performed by the Father, justification by the death of the Son, and regeneration or sanctification performed by the Spirit of God, and it has always been that way, and everyone in heaven will ascribe their salvation to that method. They'll all believe in covenant salvation when we get to heaven. That will be comforting. We'll have no more wanting to argue how men are saved. It'll be by covenant transaction because the covenant will be opened in the form of the book of life and names will be read and the names that are read will enter into the eternal kingdom. And the names that are not read will suffer in eternal torment. First of all, let's look at the patriarchal covenant. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. God made a covenant, although the word is not expressly used here, a covenant being an arrangement or a compact or an agreement between God and men. Sometimes God simply promises things. Sometimes He requires conditions or sets a test before man. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18, this is called the Adamic covenant because it's made with Adam. Genesis 2:18, and the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should, that's not the verse I want, I want verse 17. That was a nice arrangement too in verse 18, but we want verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Here's a covenant, an arrangement made between God and man. Here's a tree, Adam. If you eat of it, the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And by looking at Romans chapter 5, we can find out that when Adam ate of the fruit of that tree, you sinned in Adam also. There was a covenant relationship there with the entire human race in Adam. God simply looked at Adam, who was far superior to any of us, who had far less of a test presented to him than we have presented to us today, and Adam failed it. The Adamic covenant of works. God presented to Adam a covenant of works. Was that covenant ordained for eternal life? No. That covenant was ordained for eternal damnation. God knew before He ever gave that covenant to Adam what the result would be. Known unto God are all His works from the foundation of the world. Did, was Adam created, and did Adam eat the fruit of the tree, and did Adam die before or after, before the foundation of the world? Before or after, before the foundation of the world? 
obviously after, before the foundation of the world. But before the foundation of the world, what had God already done? Chosen sinners in Christ Jesus, foreordained Jesus Christ to die. Was he surprised at what took place in the Garden of Eden? Was it his will that man would fail a simple test and end up being condemned in the Garden of Eden? Absolutely it was his will. What was his will for Adam as expressed to Adam by precept? Don't touch, don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in his overall will of salvation and of manifesting his glory and power and kindness and mercy, it was his will. Listen, if he didn't want, in every sense of the word, Adam to eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, why didn't he put the flaming cherubim there before Adam ate of it? Why did God put the flaming cherubim around those trees that kept Adam away after he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Because it was God's will for Adam to eat of it. That was God's plan. You say, it sounds like you've got God coming and going. If you want to say it that way, God can express a command to men, such as, Thou shalt commit no murder. It's the will of God that men do not kill. Was it the will of God for Jesus Christ to be killed? Absolutely. Men broke his precept, but God so directed their sin that it accomplished his greater will. The Bible says, Surely the wrath of man shall praise thee. The remainder of wrath thou shalt restrain. When man sins in his wrath, it still works to the pleasure of God because God directs it to his greater, overriding, providential, sovereign will of all events in this universe. Did God try a different plan of salvation with Adam? No. God never intended for that covenant of works to work for Adam's salvation because the point I'm trying to make is He'd already foreordained Christ before he put Adam in the Garden of Eden and gave him a tree not to eat of. You say, then what was Adam responsible to do when he was there in the Garden? He was responsible not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, we're not responsible for God's secret or overriding providential will. We are responsible for what God has revealed to us. The fact that God takes our sinful actions and uses them to his own honor and glory just proves the absolute infinity of the God that we worship. He's able to take our sinful violation of his commandments and use it to accomplish his own will, which, which was the manifestation of his grace in Christ Jesus. The first covenant with Adam, a covenant of works, was not to give eternal life. It was to place man in a state of condemnation, which was the result. How do we know that's what God wanted? Because known unto God are his works, are all his works from the foundation of the world. What took place in the Garden of Eden was obviously God's will to leave man in a state of condemnation. Christ was already foreordained. 
God knew that he couldn't put the cherubim in there to keep the way of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or else Christ wouldn't be needed. I mean, that, that, seem, that should be obvious to all. Look, however, at Genesis chapter 3. What does Adam know about the worship of God? I have a commandment. I am not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if I eat of it, God's going to kill me in the day thereof. I'm going to suffer the just consequences of my sin if I eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the worship of God that God revealed to Adam. We're not told any more than that. It was a covenant of works to put Adam in a state of condemnation, and it was very effective. Man showed his true colors that day. But even in the midst of the covenant of works, look what we have hinted at in Genesis 3.15. The Lord speaks to Satan, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That is the gospel in a single verse. Even though it's way back, in the patriarchal period of God's dealings with men. God dealt with a few individual men. Adam, Noah, Abraham are three good examples from this period of time from creation to the giving of the law under Moses. Notice that there's just a hint here. One short little statement. The seed of the woman. Now, usually it's called the seed of the man. It's usually men that generate descendants. The seed of the woman. Try to find that somewhere else in your Bible. A hint at the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan shall bruise his heel. You want to take it literally? A nail went through his foot. If it went through his foot, how far was it from his heel? The devil persecuted, afflicted, tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. But what effect did it have on the Savior? about like banging your heel. What effect did the Son of God have on the devil? Bruised his head. He destroyed him. He took the position of power in a human body, and that is the head, and destroyed him. All in one verse, I'll put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed were Jesus Christ and the devil friends when Jesus Christ was here on earth. At enmity with each other. The gospel, in a single verse, though veiled, though not explained, presented right on the heels of the violation of the first covenant of works. The covenant of works was not a means of salvation. It was simply God's method to show Adam and all men from Adam that they're sinners. And immediately we have the promise of salvation, though obscure, very obscure. Look at chapter 4. I mean, let's stay in chapter 3. Look at verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. What did that require? The shedding of blood. We don't read about it before in the Word of God. The shedding of blood. Chapter 3. Immediately. What covered, what covered their nakedness? What covered their shame? What covered the effects of their sin? the effect of blood in chapter 3. We come down to chapter 4, verse 4. 
And Abel also, and Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. How did Abel know to bring the fat of his flock and slay it there before the Lord and offer an offering? But God is already in very veiled ways presenting the gospel. Now, I thank the Lord that I'm not up here tonight in a piece of skin trying to figure out what the thing means. And when I get done tonight, the bottom line of Hebrews chapter 8 is, are you thankful for the new covenant? God, if, if Adam's name is in the book of life, he was saved the same way you are saved, the very same way. But you know a whole lot more than Adam did. Wouldn't it be pitiful to try to figure out that I've got a Savior because I'm wearing some goat skin? You laugh, but that's where Adam was. The patriarchal period, not much in the way of revelation. That's Adam. Let's pass Noah this evening. Noah, we read in Genesis chapter 6, God looked down upon the sons of men. He saw that they were evil continually. The thoughts of their hearts were evil continually from their youth. And it says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now, is that a gracious picture of salvation? Out of the midst of a wicked world, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God preserves Noah and his family in the ark, a picture of salvation. Check it out, 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. And then after that, ark rests upon Mount Ararat, and Noah and his family come forth from the ark. They offer sacrifices to God. God accepts the sacrifices, and he makes a covenant with Noah. It's found in Genesis chapter 8. I'll never again flood the earth. You're always going to have spring time, seed time and harvest, spring and winter, summer and winter. I promise those things, and here's my token. I'll set my bow in the cloud. And we have the rainbow because of that covenant with Noah, a picture of the gracious salvation we have in Christ. But do you want to figure out salvation from a rainbow? Do you want to figure salvation out from a boat that's sitting on a mountain in Turkey? It would be nice to find it, but do you need to find a piece of gopher wood sitting on a mountain in Turkey in order to be convinced there was an ark? The Word of God said there was. Let's look now at Abraham. Abraham. But let's look in the New Testament. There's so many promises in the Old Testament to Abraham. Let's go to the New where they're summarized in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. What kind of a religious background did Abraham have according to the testimony of Scripture? Was he a worshiper of the true God or was he an idol worshiper? He was an idol worshiper. He was a Babylonian, a Chaldean. Over in Ezekiel, God says that their father was an Amorite and their mother was a Hittite. That's how Israel got their start. God had mercy upon them. God chose Abraham. We're dealing right now with a patriarchal period. A patriarch is a father. Adam, Noah, and now Abraham. The time from the creation of the world up to the giving of the law under Moses. God didn't deal with a church so much. He dealt with families. He didn't deal with a nation. He dealt with men. Melchizedek. Individuals. You read about from Adam up to Moses. After Abraham, it was Isaac. After Isaac, it was Jacob. 
it descended through a very definite line. God's dealings with the descendants of Abraham. But now let's look at Abraham. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. What did God preach to Abraham? The gospel. The gospel was preached to Abraham by promises that God made. Obscure. <laughs> very obscure. Such as, if you can keep your finger in Genesis, I mean Galatians chapter 3, look back at one passage, Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. There have been a number of promises made when God called Abraham out of the Chaldean nation. He said to him, I'll bless you with a seed. I'll bless you with a land. I'll bless you with descendants, the seed that would be greater than the stars of heaven. I'll cause you to be the source of blessing for nations. Now we have this after he was tested with his son Isaac. Genesis chapter 22 and verse 16. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his, not there, but his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. Now you say, that sounds like a conditional promise, that it's based upon Abraham's works. It sure does sound that way, but don't forget if you went back to Genesis chapter 12, these same promises were already made to Abraham. When Abraham believed the promises, and Abraham obeyed in this example right here, his faith and his works worked together to show that he was a righteous man. God was confirming his promises to Abraham. The promises had already been made many years earlier, like 40 years earlier in the life of Abraham over in Genesis chapter 12. But the promises here are that God will bless the seed, singular, of Abraham, and it shall possess his enemies, that seed, which is Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3. Here God is dealing with a man and God promises him things like a land. Without running through the New Testament this evening to prove what that land is, we've been, we've been through those passages before. When God promised Abraham a land, Abraham understood that promise to be heaven. God promised heaven to Abraham. God promised Jesus Christ to Abraham. God preached the gospel to Abraham. Now, Abraham understood more than Adam did, more than Noah did, because God preached the gospel to Abraham. Look at John chapter 8, keeping your finger at Galatians 3. 
John chapter 8 and verse 56. John chapter 8 and verse 56. This verse is almost too much. It was too much for those that heard it. Jesus said to the Pharisees and the Jews that that are the object of the lesson in John chapter 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. How did Abraham see the day of Jesus Christ? By the promises that God preached to Abraham. Abraham wasn't as confused as all the Jews and the premillennialists are today. Abraham knew God wasn't talking about a piece of desert property on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Abraham knew that God was talking about heaven when he promised him some land. I don't want to take the time this evening to look at those scriptures. They're Hebrews chapter 11 and Acts chapter 7 are the two best points to show that. Abraham was looking for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God, a heavenly country. He knew he was a stranger and a pilgrim down here in this world. He saw in those promises the gospel, the very promises we hope for. Heaven, salvation through Christ, and blessing upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. All those things were preached to Abraham. And we read that in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 3, that God preached the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. In thee, that is, in the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. All nations would be blessed. Let's read now in Galatians chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, we're mixing in a covenant that we yet have to get to, but this is so precious. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. What was the blessing of Abraham? It's a blessing obtained by Christ on a cross. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Were all the nations of the earth blessed through Jesus Christ? We are the nations of the earth tonight. We are the Gentiles. We have been blessed through Abraham. That is through his seed. So God preached the gospel to Abraham. God promised eternal life through the death of his seed to Abraham. And it was called the promise. It was all by promise. God just simply said, I promise I'll do it. And he swore to make sure they believed the promise. In Genesis chapter 22. That we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's a result of the redemption that we have in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. 
even if men have a contract or an agreement, and that agreement is confirmed in writing, you know, you go to the notary public and you get it confirmed, no man can disannul it. It is an established legal contract. Well, God made a promise and an oath to Abraham. Verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Now watch carefully. This is, this is good. Verse 17, And this I say. Now he's drawing a conclusion. When men make an agreement, they sign their names. A notary says they sign their names. It stands, and you don't disannul it. God made a promise, and God swore to Abraham in the patriarchal period of God's dealings with men. Verse 17, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. That is a beautiful verse. God promised eternal life and heaven to Abraham, which was simply the confirmation of an earlier covenant. This I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, when God promised to Abraham blessing through his seed, that was not the first time the promise was made. That was the confirmation of the promise. Notice the word that it was confirmed. It was confirmed. The promise already stood. Because God made a promise, brethren, before the world began. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He promised eternal life before the world began. He confirmed that promise in Abraham. And the law, which was 430 years after, so we know precisely what time we're talking about, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, the promises of God's blessing in the seed of Abraham. Cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Get a hold of that verse. Squeeze it for all it's worth. Regardless of the law, make the law whatever you want it to be. The promise still stands. It cannot be disannulled. The promise is eternal life through the seed of Abraham. The promise is heaven. Regardless of what the law is. We'll see what the law is in just a moment. Why, did, why didn't the Jews know that? I'll tell you why. Because Paul hadn't written it yet. And when Paul wrote it, they were then held responsible to know it. Paul made these things clear. Paul put together Abraham, the law, and the new covenant so that we could understand it. These things were kept hidden in secret from the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 3. We're not going to read it tonight. Go read Ephesians chapter 3. Paul will brag there about his ministry, that what was revealed to him was not revealed to any other of the sons of men. He understood how the promise to Abraham, the old covenant, and the new covenant all fit together. You know how they all fit together? In the everlasting covenant. He's only saved one way. And he told Abraham about it by promise. Verse 18, for if the inheritance... Now, what inheritance do you think Paul's talking about to Gentiles? Palestine? Heaven. Heaven. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. 
These words ought to be bold, capitalized, and underlined. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Eternal life and heaven, our eternal inheritance, is simply a promise. God said, I promise to do this. Surely blessing, I will bless thee and thy seed after thee. And in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Surely blessing, I will give thee this land for an everlasting inheritance. And Abraham knew what he was talking about. He was talking about heaven and eternal life. It is by promise. I don't want to show you the verse yet that says it's a promise of God. Well, it's Titus 1, 2, but don't look there yet because I need that verse in just a minute. It's a promise. Eternal life is a promise. It's not by the law. It is not by works because if it was, it wouldn't be a promise is what verse 18 is trying to teach us. Let's not read verse 19 yet. We'll come back to that under the, the old covenant. God confirmed the promise to Abraham. The promise existed before. That is the hope of everlasting life. Now, Abraham didn't know the details of it like we do. I mean, Abraham was still out there cutting the throats of lambs. He wasn't fully knowledgeable as we are of Jesus Christ. He just knew that in his seed, God had someone special planned that would bless all the nations of the earth and that salvation and heaven and immortal glory, whatever you want to call it, was contained in that seed and it was all by promise because God promised that to Abraham before Abraham did anything. Then when Abraham believed it, then when Abraham took his son up and was going to offer him on Mount Moriah, he showed by his faith and by his works he was a righteous man. And God confirmed his promises again. Now let's look at the Old Covenant. Why, Abraham had quite a load of the gospel, didn't he? He did. Abraham had a real load of the gospel, and if the Jews only went back far enough, they'd find that out. But they want to stop at Moses. They want to stop at Moses because Moses gave them their nation. Moses gave them their nation. He gave them their land. He gave them the Levitical priesthood. He gave them their tabernacle. He gave them two pieces of stone. Oh, they love pieces of stone and gold. You know, things you can feel, things you can look at, things you can smell, taste. And here, the Jews loved a carnal religion that was given to their nation. And that brings us to the Old Covenant. What was the Old Covenant? Without looking at very many verses, do any of you need proof that the Old Covenant was a covenant of works? <laughs> Ever read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy? It is a covenant of works. Do this and live. Do this and live. Do this and I'll bless you. Don't do this, I'll curse you. It was a covenant of works. Was that covenant of works another means of salvation? Was it ever intended to be another means of salvation? Did it ever enter God's mind to be another way of salvation? No! The Jews abused it to that end. They perverted it and tried to make it the basis of their righteousness. Now let's look at a few passages of Scripture. C.I. Schofield thinks it was. 
He thinks that covenant of works was a different method of salvation for those Old Testament saints under the law. We have just seen here in Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, that the law did not change or disannul or nullify the promises of God. Salvation was still by promise. But let's read further, beginning at verse 19. The obvious question is, and my outline has it too, wherefore then serveth the law? Why in the world did God bring in this old covenant that was works-related? Do this and live. Why did God bring it in? Good question. Paul admits it's a good question. That's why he takes time to answer it. It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. The gospel had already been preached. The promise was made to Jesus Christ. That in thy seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Who's, a, who's the mediator in, Gen in Galatians 3.19? Make sure you're reading with me tonight. Who's the mediator there? Moses. Absolutely, Moses. It was ordained in the hands of a mediator. Moses came down from that mountain where he had met with God. Remember, the people said, you go up there and talk to God. We don't want to speak with God. So Moses went up and God told him everything. And Moses came down and told all the people what God had said. He was the mediator and it was ordained by angels. That's the, the word spoken by angels over there in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 2. Verse 20, now a mediator is not a mediator of one. There's nothing to mediate when you're only dealing with one party. You need two. But God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Good question. God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, there was not a law given which could have given life. Verse 22, But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. What is the promise? Eternal life and heaven. It's given by the faith of Jesus Christ. Who is it given to? Who can rest on it? Who can know that it's to them? Them that believe. But it's by promise. It is by promise. The reason the law was given, it's called here the Scripture in verse 22, is to conclude all men under sin. To conclude means that's it. You're hopeless. You're a sinner. It concludes all men under sin. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under the law shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Now, but before faith came, does that give you... It may give you trouble. Was there faith in the Old Testament? Yes. Was there the true object of faith yet? No. Jesus Christ had not yet been revealed. You're going to see Christ given as the sense of the word faith. Here Paul is using the word faith for its object. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. What came? Jesus Christ came. After Jesus Christ came, He put away the law. He brought back in the promise of God. He gave an object for faith. Before faith came, we were kept under the law. Shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. The law was a hopeless form of religious worship because the object of faith had not yet arrived to show men their salvation. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. You want to get someone running to Christ in a hurry? Preach Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, or Deuteronomy and say, how do you measure up? It concludes all men under sin. It is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It shows us our sinfulness. We're going to look at some other passages we already did this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, that by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. The law speaks to those that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. The law of God is designed to make us guilty. By making us guilty, it drives us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to describe certain aspects of that faith. Baptism in verse 27 and verse 29. If ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heaven, eternal life, blessing was all by promise. If ye be Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs to that promise. How do you know you're of Christ? By faith. By faith. Because Abraham, our father, was the example of faith. Faith is the evidence by which we know ourselves to be the seed of Abraham. Because by faith we show that we're Christ, and if we're Christ, we're Abraham's seed. He is the great example. Verses 19 down through about verse 23, 24 are teaching us why the law was given. Why did God bring in this old covenant? He'd already preached the gospel to Abraham. Why did he bring in this covenant? Because of transgressions, according to verse 19. And the rest of that passage goes on to tell us he brought it in to drive men to Christ. He never intended the old covenant to save anyone. The Old Covenant was simply intended to make all men guilty and in need of a Savior. Let's look at Romans chapter 3 again. We read it this morning, but you need to see the words. Romans chapter 3. Why did God make this Old Covenant after He promised eternal life to Abraham without works? Why did he then bring in a system of works? Abraham was still offering animal sacrifices. He didn't know the details. He just knew God had promised something great. Then along came the law. Romans 3, 19 and 20, and by the law we mean the ceremonial, judicial, national law of Israel, not the moral law. The moral law had existed long before Moses. The law thou shalt not kill had existed long before Moses. I mean, Cain learned about that law. 
That's not the law we're talking about. We're talking about all the carnal ordinances of the Old Testament ceremonial worship. Why did God bring in all those animal sacrifices? Why did he bring in the Ark of the Covenant? Why did he bring in the Levitical priesthood? Why did he bring in all those Sabbath keepings and all the ordinances if you got leprosy and all the washings, divers' washings? Listen, they washed for everything. Why, Becky would be in trouble. She'd be unclean for the next, I believe it's 80 days for having a daughter under the Jewish system. They had more regulations than you can imagine. Ceremonial. Romans 3.19, now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Never forget it. God never intended salvation by the law. He intended condemnation. Same thing he did with Adam. He intended condemnation. Therefore, with the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That old covenant did not give us knowledge of salvation. It gave us knowledge of sin. Now look at Romans chapter 7. The old covenant does not teach knowledge of a Savior. It taught knowledge of sin. The only Savior that was presented there was so dark, shadowy, and figurative that you could hardly see it. Romans chapter 7. Is then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But since the commandments were all good, it wasn't any fault with the commandments, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. That's the verse I wanted you to see. The law makes sin exceeding sinful. The law shows us just how rotten we are. It's a schoolmaster. It drives us to Christ. Listen, it drives you to your knees. All you have to read is the full interpretation of thou shalt not kill and realize that means any evil harbored in your heart toward a brother without a cause. Any anger without a cause. It drives you to your knees. The law was designed to make sin exceeding sinful. Yet, the, why did God do that? God chose a period of time in a nation and set up an, an arrangement of religion, a dispensation, simply to drive them to a place of hopelessness before God. So that when Christ came, they would be driven to Jesus Christ. What did they do with the law? They made the law the source of their salvation in their minds. And that's what Paul had to spend his ministry trying to preach them out of until he was turned to the Gentiles and the other apostles trying to convince those Jews there was no salvation in the law, but it was in Christ. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved, for I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness, let me put something in brackets here, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ, they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Anyone that believes the promise of Jesus Christ doesn't have to worry about the law 
because Christ is the end. He is the fulfillment of that law. But the Jews corrupted it. However, even in that law, even though that law was ordained to condemnation, even though that law was designed to make sin exceeding sinful, though that law was to shut every mouth and make all the world guilty before God, yet there's pictures of Christ in it. What about the Passover supper? Is there any better picture in Exodus chapter 12 than Jesus Christ? Though obscure. It's a shadow. It's an example. It's a pattern. A lamb kept up kept up for three and a half days, slain at a certain time. Not a bone was to be broken, eaten with bitter herbs, blood put over a doorway, and God in His judgment would spare that house if He saw the blood. God would pass over. What a picture of Christ! So that John the Baptist would say, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. That John, when he was in heaven, would see a lamb as was slain. What a picture. What about the brazen serpent? Remember, God once sent fiery serpents among the people of Israel, and many people died. Then the brazen serpent was set up. And whoever looked at that brazen serpent found salvation and was preserved from death. The death had already been accomplished in much people. If you'll go read that back in the book of Numbers, the mercy seat, the scapegoat, the putting of sins in a goat, sending it out in the wilderness, the slaying of another goat and the taking of that blood in and putting it on the mercy seat. Substitutionary atonement. A picture of it. The gospel was presented even through the law, but it was so obscure. And the law was designed to bring condemnation and to shut mouths and to leave men guilty. Now that law was up until the ministry of John the Baptist as the only means God had with men. That was His religion. Jesus said, the law was until John the Baptist. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And that brings us to a new covenant. What does the new covenant mean? There's only been one way of salvation. It is called the everlasting covenant. God then dealt with specific individuals in the period that we call the patriarchal period. God then made a covenant of works for Israel by which they would be condemned and all the world would become guilty so that men would be driven to Christ because they would see the exceeding sinfulness of their sin. But salvation has always been the same way, by the everlasting covenant, which is the promise of God. Now, what is the new covenant? Let me put it this way. The old covenant was the practical means of the worship of God, though the eternal, legal, vital, and final had not changed a whit. Does that help? It's simply the way that God was worshipped practically. It had no eternal value. It had no legal value. It had no vital value. It had no final value. It was simply the way God wanted to be worshipped because it put man in the dust, condemned, unable to say a thing. Mouths stopped. Now, God brings in a new covenant. 
Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I want to preach to the book of Galatians soon. I hope we did somewhat justice to chapter 3 tonight, but we're going to have to wait. or We can't preach the Bible to preach the book of Hebrews in its entirety. We're having enough trouble. I'm having enough trouble. 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is so precious. Verse 9, speaking of God, who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That is a description of the everlasting covenant. It is the way men have been saved from Adam, if he was saved, down to the last man that shall be saved. The purpose and grace of God in Christ Jesus before the world began. It's always been the same way. Paul was saved that way. Paul says our works had nothing to do with it. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 is the key to the new covenant. But, <laughs> but is now made manifest. Manifest means that something is now visible. It's obvious. It's plain. It can be seen. Under the old covenant, what could you see? You saw bleeding lambs taken to an altar and killed, and their smoke ascending up into heaven. You had a remembrance of your sins every year. You didn't feel forgiven. You had no basis for forgiveness. You knew animal sacrifices couldn't do it. You knew you were a sinner. You saw your priest dying. This is the way men have always been saved. But God left 4,000 years of this world in darkness even his own people. You say, why did he do that? That's not very nice. Take it up with him when you get to heaven. It makes me appreciate the gospel a whole lot more. He left his own people in darkness under examples, shadows. You know, Paul really gets cute. and You know what I mean by the word cute in chapter 10 and verse 1 when he says, about those shadows. I like the way he words it over there. He says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. Not the very image. I mean, he's, he's talking about a shadow that it's not even really close to the real thing. Just as I described this morning, if you were to look at a shadow on the ground, what details can you make out about the thing that stands in the light? Not much at all. But look at verse 10 but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The new covenant is God's new way of dealing with men. It is the manifestation. It is the revelation of the way He has saved men from the foundation of this world but is simply now being presented in open, visible, understandable terms through Jesus Christ. He's brought life and immortality to light. A shadow isn't much light. It's darkness. Christ brings it to light. And when did Jesus Christ appear but simultaneously with the ministry of John the Baptist? The law and the prophets were until John since that time. The kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. The beginning of the gospel, Mark begins his epistle, was with Jesus Christ. The beginning 
of the gospel. The gospel in its full presentation. Abraham once heard it. He heard a promise of God. But the full presentation was with Jesus Christ. Now, Titus chapter 1. I wonder how many were patient and waited. Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Salvation has always been by promise. God made His promise before the world began. But look at verse 3. But hath in due times manifested His word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And I thank God that He commanded Paul to preach the gospel. God had always promised eternal life. Most men went to the grave without the assurance a person can have under the gospel. Thank God that God, our Savior, commanded Paul to preach the gospel in due time. The last days. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20. If those two aren't good enough, showing that salvation's always been the same way, it's simply now revealed. The new covenant simply means God has a new relationship with men. God now reveals more of His truth than He did before. God now makes manifest the way of salvation. Nothing's changed eternally, legally, vitally, or finally. But practically, there's all the difference in the world. God now makes it visible. That's the new covenant. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, speaking of Christ who verily was foreordained, before the foundation of the world, salvation's always been through Christ, but was manifest in these last times for you. He was manifest in these last times for you. There are so many that, that ridicule our doctrine of practical salvation, or gospel salvation, or temporal salvation, as the primitive Baptists call it. So many ridicule us for that as if it's not much of a salvation. I mean, big deal if you hear the gospel or not, if you're going to heaven. Paul never felt that way, did he? You read these passages of Scripture, the blessing is in the gospel. God's always saved man. Listen, he's able to do that, whether you know it or not. But what a blessing comes through knowing it. As we heard this evening a brother testifying of the doubt and anxiety and worry about whether you were saved or not. The gospel is a great blessing, and it is the new covenant. New does not mean that God designed a new way of salvation in Christ's time. New does not mean God changed the way of salvation from works to grace. New does not mean that it was not first and from the councils of eternity. When the Bible calls it the new covenant and compares it to the old covenant, always remember this. It was before the Old Covenant. It was from the foundation of the world. That's why I might call a car that I buy new when in fact it's older than one you might be driving. That's a pitiful illustration, but do you know what I mean? You buy, it, you buy something that's old and you call it new because it's new to you. It's new to you. 
the full presentation of the gospel as God's covenant or dealings with men in general was new with the ministry of Jesus Christ. Oh, Abraham had heard it preached, but it hadn't been broadcast to the nations like it was with the ministry of Christ and his apostles. New does not mean that it was not revealed earlier through figurative methods. Well, that gospel was presented in the law if you looked carefully. New means that God has changed His way of revelation and His administration of worship. The worship of God, the knowledge of God, has now changed. The emphasis or direction of things has now changed as far as our practical relationships to God. Eternally, legally, vitally, or finally, it's the same by promise. The work of God. But God now in the new covenant makes things obvious, visible, plain to our understandings. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You want to talk about a passage that can light the fire of a minister? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 6 through 18. Speaking of Christ and of God, who also hath made us, Paul, speaking of the ministry, able ministers of the New Testament. Who would want to be a Levitical priest and minister condemn? Well, let's just go ahead and read it. Who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, and it was, wasn't it? If you would have stood at Mount Sinai when God wrote on two tablets of stone, it was a glorious sight. That's the point you want to keep in memory here. If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? Rather glorious. If that was glorious, and all they ministered was death and condemnation, how much more glorious to minister life Oh, men might think to themselves, wouldn't it be great to have been Moses? Forget it. Forget coming down with two tables of stone that shuts everybody's mouths and tells them they're worthy of death. I'd much rather preach a gospel that tells men Jesus Christ has promised life from the foundation of the world and it's been accomplished in Christ. Verse 10, For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of the glory that excelleth. Really, it didn't have any glory, Paul says. Well, why, how can you say that, Paul, by comparison? By comparison, it didn't really have any. Now, what was mentioned there about Moses had to cover his face. Moses came down from that mountain and his face glowed like he'd been nuked. You know, you've seen it on TV where somebody's face is glowing. Well, his face was glowing from the presence of God. And the people couldn't even look at him, so he had to wear a veil. First man in the Bible to wear a veil. He wore a veil to cover the shining of his face. 
And whenever he went in with God, he took the veil off. Whenever he came out to the people, he put the veil on. It was glorious. But they couldn't see it all. It was hidden by a veil. Just let's keep reading. Verse 12, seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. Let's get verse 11. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. He said rather, now he says much more. <laughs> seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech. How much hope was there in the old covenant? <laughs> Condemnation is hope. Paul saying, because we have so much hope in the gospel we preach, we use great plainness of speech. And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. The Old Testament was abolished. They couldn't even look to the end of it. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. Christ brings in plainness. Christ makes things manifest. Under the law, it was through a veil. Verse 15, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Paul was one that turned. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord. We don't have a veil. There is no obstruction. It's plain. It's obvious. It's like we're looking at a piece of glass. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Through the preaching of the gospel, men are able to come to an understanding of the mind of the Lord and are changed from glory unto glory, even to His image, because we have the mind of Christ. So different from the Old Covenant. What mind did they have? Not much. We have been blessed so abundantly with the most glorious covenant that God has ever given to His people. Look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Verse 6, Jesus Christ is a better priest because He's the minister of a better covenant. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. How did the Jews look at that old covenant? It was the means of righteousness. Could it accomplish righteousness? No. From God's standpoint, it was never intended to do that. They thought that it was. Verse 8, For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. It was the same year of time when God gave the law to Israel that He took them out of the land of Egypt. God said, I'm not going to make a covenant with them like that. They had their period of time when they were left under condemnation. They couldn't measure up to it. They failed in the covenant. It only made them sinners. Now it's time for a new covenant. This is all a quotation from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31. Paul's quoting it. It's all in the future tense because from Jeremiah's viewpoint, it was future tense. From Paul's standpoint, it was past tense. Christ had already come and set up the covenant. 
why he confirmed it when he said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. He was making plain the fact that blood of animals wouldn't do the job. This is my blood, the blood of the Son of God, a whole new revelation called the New Covenant. Look at the four terms of this covenant. Verse 10, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Let me interject this. Who is the house of Israel whenever you read the New Testament in a place like this? God's elect, Jew or Gentile, spiritual Israel, the elect, those Jews that are regenerated in their heart, not physical Jews. These are God's people of both Jews and Gentiles. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. Term number one, God would put his law on a different writing table. Old Testament, where was the law? Stone. In an ark of the covenant. External, outwardly. Emphasis of the new covenant, internal. And a disposition to want to keep it. What's over the hearts of the Jews? A veil. Their religion? Remember, salvation never changes in the least. Regeneration occurred in the Old Testament as well as it occurs in the New. But what was the emphasis of religion and worship of God? It was on tables of stone out here. Tables of stone. The emphasis of the New Testament is what God does inside His elect. And there is a greater manifestation of regeneration than there was in the Old Covenant. The emphasis is internal as opposed to external. I will write, he always wrote his law in the hearts of men when he regenerated them. That's not changing as an aspect of vital salvation. It's changing as the emphasis. God is no longer laying out that law in tables of stone that leaves men condemned. He's putting his laws into their heart, and that is the emphasis of spiritual, internal worship of God in the New Testament. That's term one. Term two, I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. He said that to Israel over and over again. Was he a God to Israel like he's a God to New Testament saints? No way. I could give you ten references in the Holy Ghost that would make the Old Testament look pitiful. God never came and dwelled with the average Old Testament saint like he does the average New Testament saint. Once in a while, a man had the ministration of the Spirit to feel like God was with him. In the New Testament, that's available to all. Look at Romans chapter 8. Keeping your finger at Hebrews 8, or just listen to it, Romans 8, 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Guess what spirit that was? For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. I will be to them a God, they shall be to me a people. No people have ever had the opportunity for a personal relationship with God like in the New Testament. Where was God in the Old Testament? In hearts? In the tabernacle. Where specifically? Between the cherubim. If you wanted to meet with God, one man could go and meet Him. How often? Once a year. How often can you go? Anytime you want. Isn't that, 
is there any difference between the old covenant and the new covenant? Not a spirit of bondage. A spirit of adoption. They were under bondage and fear at the remembrance of sin. There's so many verses on the Spirit that we don't have time for this evening. This is one of the blessings of our inheritance. It is the earnest of our inheritance. Those Old Testament saints had the same inheritance, but guess what they didn't get? An earnest. They didn't receive an earnest. Unless you want to call Palestine their earnest. Compared to the Spirit of the living God, what an earnest we have of heaven. A down payment. Verse 11. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. By the indwelling of the Spirit of God under the new covenant, all of God's people have an understanding of God that far excels that of the Old Testament. Why in the world could Jesus Christ say to some children that were praising Him one day that God has ordained wisdom out of the mouths of babes? In the Old Testament, where was the knowledge of God? It was contained in a book, and certain men taught it exclusively. Others didn't even have the book. They didn't have the Spirit of God blessing them with knowledge like we have under the New Covenant. The emphasis on teaching as the only way of knowing God was done away in the New Covenant. All of you have within you, by the Spirit of God, a greater comprehension and ability to understand truth than anyone had under the Old Testament. These descriptions here of the covenant, and if you can get one statement, get this one. These descriptions of the New Covenant are relative and comparative only. You make them absolute and you will destroy your Bible. Notice that it says, they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother. Do you have an obligation to teach your neighbor and brother? Absolutely. Do you have a responsibility to teach them to know the Lord? Absolutely. But comparatively to the Old Covenant, that burden isn't nearly as great because God blesses us with the spirit of illumination. What did Paul pray for the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1? But a spirit that the Old Testament saints never had. They were left in darkness. And in the, in the New Testament, we have the blessings of His Spirit and a comprehension of the gospel. The gospel is buried in our hearts. And when it is preached, there's something in our hearts that matches up with it. It is not simply a letter. It is the preaching and ministration of the Spirit. God, Jesus Christ said He seeks those that worship Him in spirit and in truth. It is no more in simply letter, learning. Big difference. Remember, these terms here must be relative and comparative to the Old Covenant. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. Have you ever met <clears throat> a true saint of God that may have an IQ of 80 or 90, but he knows God in a way that men with an IQ of 150 are unable to match under the new covenant? You didn't have that in the old covenant, other than exceptions. 
We have met old folks in our time whose minds are feeble, and they have a comprehension of God and a hope of eternal life and confidence in Christ that many times we'd crawl for if we could have it. From the least to the greatest, God would bless and infuse with knowledge and understanding which He did not do comparatively under the Old Testament. Verse 12, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. This is tough. Did God forgive sins and have mercy under the Old Covenant? <coughs> Men were saved the same way they are today. Well, what's the change? The Gospel. The outward understanding of these things. When you went to the temple under the Old Testament, and it's chapter 10, I can't cheat and go ahead. But when you went to the tabernacle and offered a sacrifice, what was the purpose under the Old Covenant? The remembrance of sin. The Old Covenant... All of worship was designed to make me feel terrible. I'm a sinner and to remember my sins. What a wonderful mode of worship. And I say that as a fool for any Jews that Paul was having to deal with who wanted that way of worshiping God. Can you imagine it? No wonder Paul called it the beggarly elements. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Old covenant, remembrance of sin. New covenant, God has forgotten them. He can't remember them. That is the ministry that's preached. That is the message that is preached. That is what you are able to understand. You're able to see it. Sins were forgotten under the Old Testament through the forbearance of God. But under the New Testament... That's revealed to us. No one could see that under the Old Testament. Verse 13, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. What does new mean? Whatever it's replacing is old. Here's Paul arguing from a single word. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old, notice his terms he uses here, Whatever is decaying and waxing old is ready to vanish away. He's introducing very slowly to these Jews, listen, that old thing is getting corrupted, it's decaying, it's waxing old. The very fact that Jeremiah, in your scriptures, said that God in those days would make a new covenant is proof that that one's old and it's passing away. And by now, if they're not convinced they'd rather have the new covenant, they're in irremediable trouble as we showed from chapter 6, to go against this kind of preaching from the Apostle Paul. We are under the new covenant, brethren. When we observe the Lord's Supper, those words that you've heard so many times, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, are important words. God promised eternal life before the world began, but He's manifested His word through preaching in these last times by the commandment of God our Savior. That is the new covenant. May God bless us to thank Him and to be diligent in our covenant privileges in the New Testament. For to whom much is given, much shall be required.